Critical thinker at large coming at you for another podcasting greatness uh, hour or two. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, now, I am joined this week by a guest. Uh, her name is now. I always butcher people's names. So and I didn't even check with you before. I am. I'm so horrible. Jen Kiaba. That was perfect. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I got it right the first time. This it, my audience will know. I, this is rare. OK, so. I am welcoming Jen Kiaba. Now, she is a former member, grew up in the Unification Church, the Moonies, um, the same group that Steve Hassan, who I think all, most of you who are watching or listening to the show are familiar with. Same group he was involved in in the 1970s. This is the organization of Reverend Sun Myung Soon, something like that. Moon. Moon. That's where you get Moonies. Moonies. Yes, that's right. And uh, boy, anyway, welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I think this is going to be fun. And you are the first guest I've had who is doing the same educational program that I am, the, um, yeah. the Psychology of Coercive Control program through the University of Salford. How's that going for you? Amazing. It's six weeks in, and I feel like I am um, drowning in research methods. Um, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> We should talk after the show. <laughs> I know, yes. I know. Um, you know, this is something that I've actually talked to the heads of the program about, and I think it's something that they're familiar with, that a lot of people who've grown up in these high-demand groups, our education is very spotty, um, and that's a nice way of putting it. So I come to this program with a deep interest in the subject matter, but maybe with a, a weakness in the science. And so there's a lot of catch-up that I feel like I'm doing. And so I love it. And it is, um, it's like a roller coaster ride for me emotionally because uh, SGAs tend to be perfectionists. We're super hard on ourselves. And so it's like, oh my God, I suck. Not, I, I'm coming in with a little bit of a handicap, you know? I hear you. I hear every word you are saying. And a year ago, I, yes. I get it. Um, I will. I will throw out there for you right now, um, in case we don't get a chance later. Um, TheGreatCourses.com class on statistics was quite helpful for me. Yeah, I have it queued up in my in my yeah. library rentals. There you go. There you go. Uh, that's what got me through as far as the, the statistics part of it. Um, and that was the toughest part. Was you know yeah. was figuring out p values and stuff like that. I was totally lost. Totally yeah. lost. Yeah, we were reading, um, we were doing a reading and then like a group analysis of studies that were all uh, quantitative. And I was just like, it's another language. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, it really is. Yeah. It really yeah. is. And diving in, have you, um, are you coming at this after doing a four years or did you jump the line like I did and just go right to the master's program? No, I did four years. I got out of the Unification Church when I was 21 and was a little bit, again, spotty. Um, so just, you know, in my primary school years and high school years, I went to, I think, 12 different schools in 13 years. And oh, had boy. Some yeah. Homeschooling, which was basically my parents leaving me with a set of encyclopedias and saying, read. So um, 
I struggled through a four year, um, worked my way through it in terms of like, you know, trying to keep a roof over my head, get enough food to eat. And I had a car where the, literally the bottom of it was falling off on the road. Um, so yeah, <laughs> like classic SGA trying to survive in the real world. But I did come out with a four year degree and a shit ton of debt. Um, so it took me 10 years before I thought I was ready to approach a master's. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good on you for doing that and for doing what you're doing now. There's a there's a lot of backstory here. Mm. Excuse me. And um, we have, you know, there. My audience is. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna speak for my audience right now and say that you know you guys out there who have been watching this show for a long time are familiar with a lot of the concepts and terminology that we have been that that Jen and I are now learning or studying about in this coercive control program, because we have been uh, covering not only the subject of destructive cults, but also human trafficking and domestic violence. And it's interesting, actually listening to your story in earlier interviews you've done, seeing the connections between how these various domains of coercive control actually connect in your story, in your life, mm -hmm. and how one actually kind of begets another, kind of begets another. Yeah, you know, especially in the case of uh, the the context of your of your parents, uh, you know, mm -hmm. who were. Well, I'll let you tell the story. Um, so why don't we go ahead and get to that? What is sure. the as as far as um, the the broad strokes? What are the broad mm -hmm. strokes of your story? Sure. Yeah. So um, being a second generation means that, you know, my parents joined the Unification Church, both very young. My father was 18. I think my mother was 20. They both came out of family environments or personal circumstances that I think the broad public would associate with the cult recruit. You know, you and I and your audience probably know that there is no single personality type that lends itself to cult recruitment. However, my parents fit that kind of classic paradigm of not of a stupid person necessarily or a gullible person, but certainly someone who is carrying a lot of trauma. So my mother had uh, recently lost her fiance in a tragic accident. My father grew up uh, without a father. He lost his father to cancer at like 11, had a very sort of distant mother. And I think both of them were looking for something. They were both seekers with a lot of damage. So they were both trafficked through the Unification Church mobile fundraising team. Um, the, the kind of classic way that people were indoctrinated in the Unification Church is that, you know, they were met by a front group and whomever met this person would model like, oh yeah, all these things that you're interested in. We do that through the, you know, creative community project or whatever. And they'd be invited to a dinner or an evening and then taken to a camp. And then they'd go through classic thought reform processes. So after that, um, you know, if you've read Lifton, you know that thought reform doesn't necessarily hold unless you stay in that milieu, right? And so I believe that mobile fundraising team, which is the, the classic human trafficking of the Unification Church, it's people literally live in vans and are carted around the country selling flowers and trinkets and the classic image of the Mooney in the 1970s is somebody selling flowers at the airport. In fact, the movie Airport shows the scene where like the Mooney gets punched in the face. Hilarious, but also really sad um, because that's a trafficked person we're thinking about that's become a punchline. So anyway, um, 
I think that's the environment in which that sort of uh, pseudo slash cult personality hardens. And so my parents were probably both in the church for five plus years before they were matched by Reverend Moon in 1979. And then they were married in the mass wedding in 1982, which most Americans remember. It's the Madison Square Garden blessing. So. <laughs> and blessing meaning born- marriage. Marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so the theological kind of idea behind the blessing is that, oh, see, one of my cats is already here (laughs) demanding something. I knew this was going to happen. The blessing is in Reverend Moon's ideology to basically remove a person from Satan's lineage. And there's, we can go into this later, but there's a lot of like sexual ideology and sexual ritual and sexual ritual historically that feeds into that but yeah you'd you'd mention if i might cut you off for just a moment just because it surprised the hell out of me i didn't know this and i don't i I don't claim any expertise on on the moonies but i i somewhat familiar through through hassan's story and other things that i've read but i was not aware the man was you know uh, back in korea had been sleeping around had you know, very loose sexual morality and then comes to America and completely flips the script. And it's all about sexual repression and, and oppression. Classic control, right? Sexual yeah. repression and oppression. Um, I I don't know exactly what the thought process was in terms of the switch other than maybe they realized that um, having orgies wasn't going to be great for recruitment in the United States. Like there must've been a market mismatch somewhere. I I tell you, because it seems to me it would be a fairly viable recruitment line, you know, but apparently not. Yeah. 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 So, you know, to kind of flesh out what you're saying in Korea in the 1950s, there were a number of shamanistic groups that were popping up. And, you know, in shamanism and paganism, sexual rituals are a very common thing. And so I I try to be very careful about condemning that when I talk about the Unification Church. But there is a history of group sex and ritual sex as sort of a cleansing to, again, remove somebody from the lineage of Satan and bring them into what Moon believed was like the godly lineage. And so he was the purifier of the womb, you know, so he had to have sex with all the ladies, and then the ladies could go and have sex with the men. Right. And so that because it didn't get imported exactly into the United States, it is still retained in Unification Church theology through the three-day ceremony, which all first generation have to do. Creeps me out to think about my parents doing it because it's it's three days of ritual sex. Ooh, hello, sweetie, in front of Moon's picture. Um, wow. And, yeah, and there are like handkerchiefs that you, ooh, that you save from it. <laughs> Sorry, My goodness. This is, the most, this is the most disruptive that she's been in a while. Ah, no um, worries. I yeah. wasn't aware that there was this much um, specific sexual, sexually oriented dogmatic activity going on in this group. And I and I wasn't speaking, by the way, just to clarify for, for you and for the audience, I, I wasn't speaking to condemn behavior one way or the other, except to point out the cultural context switches the belief set mm-hmm. in 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 sometimes you know fantastic 180 degree ways right and i find and that fascinating that they can get away with that kind of thing you know i i think that there 
they repressed the history of the the sexual ritual even within the unification church so it's something that's talked about of like did it happen did it not happen Mm. the older couples who would have participated in it are probably very hush hush about it there is a book called um the change of blood lineage through ritual sex i think that's the name of it I'll give you the title of it later if you want to put in the show notes, but it is an exploration of that particular history of the Unification Church. But growing up, I didn't know anything about it. And Mm -hmm. if and when people talked about it, it was like, no, that didn't happen. That's just Satan accusing Moon, you know, true father is what we called him. Um, And my mother would put it in terms of like, in Korea, Satan accused father of the one thing that he knew that the Korean people would condemn, which was sexual immorality. And then when he came to the United States, Satan switched tactics and, and you know, said that um, in America he was, you know, brainwashing. So it was like, it was always Satan and Satan's chess game with providence and God's providence. Got so it. There's, you know, there there are a lot of different ways that I think people um, justified it to themselves without believing that it was true, even when there was specific evidence. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That makes complete sense and is completely consistent with, you know, cognitive dissonance theory and everything we know about that. You know, that people, here's the funny thing. And I started thinking, I was thinking about, um, I I thought of another way to explain this. let me know what you think about this, because I throw these things out every now and again. And uh, this one being, you know, people ask how you'd have you'd have to be a moron to join a cult. You have to be a stupid person to join a cult. You know, you hear this over and over and over again. We're we're just it, it's it becomes like a litany that, you know, that certain yeah. people out there just kind of have this thing that they think, you know, the intelligence is going to protect you from this. And it just doesn't work that way. It's not a shield in any way. But mm-hmm. um uh, my take on it is that the belief is so powerful that it's not you're stupid and then you adopt this belief. It's that you adopt this belief and it's so overpowering to to your life and, and you make it that way that you kind of keep yourself stupid. It's the other I, way around, you know? I think that at some point, when your milieu, when your personality sort of ossifies within the group context, that yeah. is absolutely true. Yeah. I would say that that's probably, I think it's more of a fight as a person is going through that indoctrination process. And I'm sure there's a lot of flipping back and forth, yeah. um, the snapping as it's yeah, called. That's right. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I I always roll my eyes when I hear people say only stupid people join cults. I would never be that stupid um, because again, a nobody joins. Uh, B nobody is, you know. Yanya Lalich in Take Back Your Life has that contract that like if you were offered this contract by a cult that told you this is what your life will be, this is exactly what we're going to do to you, would you sign it? And everybody's like, of course not. But that's not how people are approached. And it's a a very gradual thing and it's filled with a lot of deception. So we've all been deceived. I've, I've bought things on infomercials when I've been in hotels at two in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think we've all done that at some point. Right. So, um, that means that we are uh, susceptible to some form of influence and it's just a matter of how much we are subjected to and and 
the amount of time um, and our personal circumstances too, because, you know, there are specific points at which we are all vulnerable. So exactly. Exactly. I I make this point constantly and I love it when my guests make the get, make that point too. It's, it's one that I feel like I sort of say until I'm blue in the face when I talk to people. Um, but I think it's probably one of the most important things is that, uh, we are all vulnerable and once we accept that, then we can start looking out for the signs. We can start educating ourselves and each other. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I completely cut you off there. So okay. please pick back up on your broad no, strokes narrative yeah. here. Yes. So that's how I got here is, you know, probably a creepy sex ritual. Just, you know, <laughs> history. Everybody <laughs> loves thinking about that. Ugh. Um Yeah, so I'm the oldest of five kids, and in the Unification Church, the second generation are referred to as blessed children because the kind of core theology is that the fall of man was a sexual sin between Eve and Lucifer, who, you know, seduced Eve, and then Eve seduced Adam, and so through this sexual congress, all of humanity became engrafted onto Satan's lineage instead of God's lineage, and so through the sexual rights within the unification church, whether the group sex of the 1950s or the sort of more family-friendly portable version of the three-day ceremony in the United States, we are engrafted back onto God's lineage. And so um, second generation were the people that you know God had been waiting for through 6,000 years of biblical history. Um, yeah, we, were, just, we were just waiting for Reverend Moon to come along so he could purify we were, the whole line. Well, so yeah, so a little more of the mythology is that, uh, you know, uh, Reverend Moon believed that at like 15 or 16, depending on the Korean way of counting or the American way of counting, Jesus appeared to him at Easter while he was praying on a mountain and said, I wasn't supposed to die on the cross. You need to fulfill my mission for me. My mission was to get married and make babies. Continue God's lineage. <laughs> uh, and so, so, you know, so he's so he got away with rewriting the entire fundamental principle of Christianity, mm-hmm. and all and these think, people are on board with that. Oh yeah, and I think um, wow, yeah, some people really believed that, like, oh, this is this makes sense. There's an, a lecture in the Unification Church theology called like the Parallels of History. And it is, it was not invented by Moon. None of the theology was. He sort of cherry-picked a lot of different things, but it's oh. supposed to show how through biblical history all of these figures came. And it's supposed to be very scientific and mathematical to show that um, you know, the Messiah was supposed to be born in Korea, was supposed to be born in 1920. So that by the end of like a seven-day workshop when someone was being indoctrinated, nobody had to tell them Reverend Moon is the Messiah. They had the spiritual revelation themselves. Right. Um, and so I think that it, through that indoctrination process, even people who, um, you know, I would, I would think that somebody who was like a really staunch Christian who had a good grounding in theology would probably have been able to argue with the lectures and then gotten kicked out of the indoctrination well, yeah. workshops. Y- yeah. But anybody who is like vaguely Christian who hadn't really read the Bible to that depth might have been able to say like, oh, that makes sense. Right. So. I find it really funny to, you know, sidetrack again that um, the the evangelical right in the United States has 
kind of cozied up with the moon factions because there are now factions now that river moon has died and um so they look at these as sort of like these neo-christian groups you know the main branch of the church and then sean moon's ar-15 group that has been in the news lately and it's like if you really peek under the hood this is not a christian organization that you know they're basically saying jesus failed that is like the core tenet of christianity sorry guys you actually weren't saved i mean basically that's why i i i am shocked that there are you know formal christian organizations that are cozying up or allying with this outfit cuz that it's it, it, i can't think of anything more anti-christian than that messaging he literally says jesus failed and i'm here cuz i'm the actual messiah and and this yeah. wow wow yeah i think there was um this caveat of like jesus provides like physical salvation but not spiritual salvation like you basically can't get into heaven if you don't believe in river and moon and you don't go through the blessing right. um and and so jesus was sort of condemned to paradise but not heaven i wonder how many failed maybe failed is the wrong word i wonder how many people though as you mentioned people who come in really not well grounded in the christian theology really not you know well familiar or 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 i'm wondering how many of those people also might be coming to Moon or Moon's theology as a rejection of Christianity because maybe they grew up in a traumatized household or, mm -hmm. uh, or you know, other negative indoctrination or negative repercussions from their from their religious as belief. I'm not suggesting religious belief itself is got is is, is you know somehow damaging, but. Right. We know for a fact that there are a lot of households that are religious in nature that, that bring up kids in very abusive ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that recognizing that religious and spiritual abuse, religious trauma exists is very important. Um, but as you know, getting a an accurate sampling of the psychological state of current members is very difficult. Yeah, they're not transparent, <laughs> are they? <laughs> no, no, no. So, um, yeah, no. and and so I'm I'm deep in Lifton's thought reform book right now, uh. Uh, revisiting that, and it's it's so amazing to me to read about these experiments because I think that's really what they were in terms of like human experiments on a psyche and psychology. Um, the the actual processes that they put people through in terms of condemning their past lives and condemning their their associates and being struggled, you know, that that was directly imported into the Unification Church indoctrination programs. If you read Moonwebs by journalist Josh Freed, it's out of print, but you can find it on like Amazon and thrift books and stuff. If you compare what he and his friend experienced in the Boonville camp um, being indoctrinated into the Unification Church, it's eerily resonant of what people experienced in China, maybe more in like the university setting versus the prison settings, but it's still that framework is the same. Yep. And so it, that that does make it really, really hard when you're talking to somebody, again, whose personality has sort of calcified within the indoctrination to get a true sense of what their past was because they've been so, um, they've been learned to condemn their past. And so you might actually get data that says like, yeah, my past was so abusive and my parents were so terrible and I was this drug addict or my mother's 
her classic line was like, if, if I hadn't been saved by father, I would have ended up dead from drugs or something like that. Like, I think that she smoked pot, right? maybe did some acid. Maybe it was the seventies. <laughs> right. Right. But I just, I, I look back on like the little bits of the story that I get and the pieces that I'd gotten from like my uncle and stuff. I'm like, you don't sound like the type ma, but, but that, you know, she was convinced of that storyline because again, she went through this thought reform process that taught her that her, she had to reject that past life. You know, she had mm-hmm. to completely condemn it. So again, just going back to the data would be completely dirty in my opinion. Yeah. Oh no, for sure. For sure. I just like throwing out, you know, random research questions cause it's fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wonder how many of those were, you know, fill in the blank, right? Or because right. these are these are completely legit research questions, actually. I mean, these are these are very, very needed things to to, to questions to have answers to, but but yeah. we don't but but the problem in studying these, whether you're coming at it from a psychological, sociological, or religious studies perspective, is none of these groups are are readily open or transparent about their activities, membership you know, attitudes or even their teachings. So it makes it a little hard um, to study. I, it does. It does. And I, I finished uh singer's cults in our mist, which is part of our, our reading list. And she throws some serious shade on not only the cult groups, but then the researchers who try to like work with the cults. Right. And she specifically calls out Dr. Eileen Barker for making of a Mooney because she did get unprecedented access to members of the unification church to make that book. However, um, she was paid by the Unification Church to do it. So she lost funding for her uh, for her charity called Inform. But more importantly, is that uh, the Unification Church and other groups, which Singer again calls out, they're, they're going to cherry pick the people that researchers get to talk to. You're not going to get the person that's going through a psychotic episode because they've been so abused by the group. They're going to pick the people that come across as like the most normal, if you will. And so again, like, how do you get an accurate data sampling of the people who are in? And this, you know, this kind of goes into like that whole core argument of the cult wars, right? Between the cult sympathizers and the anti-cultists, the anti-cultists generally being more on the psychology and psychiatric side being like, look, these are the people that have come out of these groups. They are severely damaged. And then the people who are more like sociologists and new religious movement scholars talking to the people that the cult has given them access to being like, we're not getting that data. Like, what's going on. And so that's where a big rift comes in, in the data. And it is very frustrating. And I think that it's informed uh, a big problem in the communication that we have today about who, who joins the cult, what is the cult, you know? Um, so that, yeah, uh, you're <laughs> nailing go it. Down you, there, you, you are describing the exact problem. And I have recently actually done a whole podcast on the, on exactly what you were just talking about. Um, because that problem has become more and more apparent to me uh, recently with more articles from yeah. NRM-minded sociologists and religious studies scholars yeah. 
that I've been responding to. I've actually been writing written responses to not really? publishing in academic journals, but in popular uh, media, I've been responding openly to these academics. And that's awesome. Yeah, it's basically declaration of war, but the cult wars is already going. So it's really just lobbing more missiles. But right. it's it's the, it's the next generation of it, because this has been going on since the 70s when, yep. um, you know, Brian R. Wilson got this whole thing going. And it's and it's not just a pro and an against. My issue with this is, you know, I, I'm willing to to see that there are people who are going to be sympathetic to certain aspects of of the cults and what they're doing mm-hmm. from a religious studies perspective of looking at them as baby religions and aren't they cute and they go through these tough periods and you know when you get really ivory tower and really step away from the atrocities of it. I get how some people can get in that frame of mind. It's naive, but I get it. Mm. What I don't get is how any of them get off completely writing off everything you and I have to say about our experiences. Yeah, I, yes. Um, I am not fully aware of too many people in the new religious movement camp other than Dr. Eileen Barker, who have tried to really listen to maybe the second generation standpoint. She did come to a panel that I was presenting on for an ICSA workshop. Um, But at the same time, and I I don't want to come across as sympathetic because I I do see myself more in the anti-cult camp because I did experience this from birth. Um, But when you look back at the history to the 1970s, where parents were creating these conservatorships, and there were these deprogrammings and kidnappings, I can understand how somebody from an academic standpoint, from a legal standpoint, from a sociological standpoint would be like, hold the fucking phone here. This is um, a basic violation of these people's human rights. You're talking about deprogramming now. Deprogramming, the conservatorships that were happening. Like if you read Betty Underwood's book, Hostage to Heaven, she is one of five Unification Church members that were held under a temporary conservatorship by their parents trying to get them out of the Unification Church. And then I think all of them subsequently went through deprogramming, maybe not to the extent Betty might have been like kidnapped too. So these things kind of came hand in hand. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I mean, I grew up hearing stories that, again, may have been hyperbole, and we can get back to my story eventually, but this is way more interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, I, I grew up hearing stories about people like Ted Patrick as being the boogeyman. Like yep. I went to a church boarding school for one year and most of the time my science teacher talked about his deprogramming. I, I don't really remember anything about science, but I remember him talking about being locked in a hotel room tied to a bed, you know, Not, and right. that people were taught to like slit their wrists to be sent to the hospital um, in fact, I think it's in one of the, the first gen memoirs that I have where, no, 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 it's in a book called Brainwash uh, by Dominic Stridfield, where he talks about, I forget her name. She wasn't, she wasn't deprogrammed by Ted Patrick, but uh, somebody green and mm, now not familiar totally, with green. He's a lawyer in California and I'm blanking on his first name, but mm. uh, he, it, there was a brother and sister. Mm. Um, they both joined the church. He joined, joined. He came in looking for her to try to get her out. He got indoctrinated for like a year or two, left, 
And then he tried to kidnap his sister. Um, well, he did kidnap his sister and she like broke a bottle or something and like sliced herself too. I don't think it was her wrist, but anyway, point being that like, this was, <laughs> these were the folk tales that I grew up with about deprogramming right. um, and just how horrifying and, and scarring for my parents' generation it was. So again, this is not to defend the new religious movement side of things because I also recognize that there are horrible atrocities and abuses that are committed by these new religious movements. And why are you giving them a pass because they're baby religions? And I, I really, really hate the, you know, it's cult plus time equals religion equation, right? (laughs) Because it's like, "Mm, I don't know about that. Uh, You know, we don't have the data to really say whether or not like Christianity in its inception was as abusive as some of these other groups that you and I come from. We just don't know. So that's, that's speculative at best. Well, it it is. And there's a lot, there's there are deep conversations to be had about that particular theory because, or framing or however you want to kind of look at it. Um, you know, the evolutionary process of, of religions is, is a fascinating study. And it's one that I've said many, many times needs to be studied. I would love to see, you know, objective academic work done on that. Now, I'll send you after the show, by the way, um, this paper that was written um, by uh, Stephen Kent, um, which clearly lays out the history of um, where this apostate, you know, apostates should not be listened to, mm-hmm. apostates are to be ignored, and I mean ignored. It's a black and white issue for them. Um, it is straight up. They have nothing to contribute to the conversation. They are not to be listened to. Um, every single one of them, by the way, and this is Brian R. Wilson, this is 1970s, and this actually predates the entire deprogramming fiasco, which was absolutely horrible Mm -hmm. and only fed them ammunition, but it Mm -hmm. wasn't actually the genesis point of not listening to apostates or not listening to former members, as they call us apostates. I, I actually kind of hate that word, but um, it's a very JW phrase, isn't it? I, it's yeah. not one the Unification uses. Uh, Unification Church. It's like ex-members, former members. Yeah. See, Scientology grabbed onto the apostates thing. Okay. They actually uh, couldn't uh, cater to Brian R. Wilson enough uh, back in the '70s and '80s, and I actually just yesterday spoke with a former high-level church official who's now out in Scientology who talked all about whining and dining, Brian Wilson, for Scientology, specifically so he would write these papers and so that former Scientologists would never be listened to by academia, and it worked. Well, I am sure that there's dirty Unification Church money mixed in there too then. That's right. (laughs) I'll do some Googling. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic and one that I am into because I believe that it's almost a matter of, I, 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 some people might think that this is a bit uh, hyperbolic to put it this way, but I truly believe it's a human rights issue. I mean, if an entire class of people are being relegated to the trash heap, and they are, Mm-hmm. by a, an entire school of academia, I think this is a, a, a gigantic problem. Yeah. And and that has been the dogmatic approach of religious studies and sociology, that not psychology. And this is why we have this thing called the cult wars, you know, and it's this, it's mm-hmm. this horrible decades-long nonsense that I'd love to help bury the hatchet. Actually, I don't want to continue this. I, I mm-hmm. want to work with these people. But 
man, they make it tough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I did try to go to um, Inform, put on a conference recently about just even using the term cult and things like that. Mm. And I I dipped out pretty quickly. (laughs) Um, I don't remember who the first person was that was talking, but I was just, I was having such an emotional reaction to it because again, it did feel like um, it, it was taking my experience, your experience, everybody like us, and just completely saying that we are, it was just invalidating us. And I was like, no, can't handle that. That's right. Um, That's and right. Inform published a book called The Cult Wars in Perspective. And I was like, oh, if I could find it cheap enough, I would buy it to like scribble my anger in the market. Yes. But it's very expensive. So. Yes. I, and that's exactly the kind of thing that in the future, once I finish this program, because I'm on the thesis part now, once I get done with this thing, I'm very seriously considering how I can put publish, uh, you know, in not, uh, they won't publish my stuff at Cessner or an inform, but I am going to, to figure out ways to fight back against this because it's just, it's just time. It's, it needs to change. And there's, and there is some indication of sea change with this, but it's not fast enough and it's not, and there's still too many of them and too few of us. And that's, that needs to, and actually what I say that I mean in academia, because in the real world, there's way more ex-members of these destructive cults than there are these this small number of, of academics that we're talking about, but they dominate the field. And so, you know, it's just not fair. Right. Yeah. So, and as you pointed out, actually, and, and see, this is so funny because we didn't talk about this part at all. This has been a, a whole tear I've been on for weeks now. We didn't talk about this at all. I didn't know this was even going to come up in, in us talking about this, you know, but clearly... Yeah. My point that this is that these academics kind of re-traumatize us with this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, there is a big conversation in a group that I'm involved with. Um, it's a it's a survivor's advocacy group. And there's a kind of a I think pop psychology is like too generous of a phrase, but it's about cults that just came out. And uh, it does quote one of these new religious movement scholars, and it it there are things in it that I don't think the broad audience of the book are necessarily going to pick up on. But mm-hmm. because I'm so hypersensitive to this topic, I had to put the book in the in my attic when I was done with it because I was pissed, you know. And I I like I really held back. A lot of times when I like a book, I will email an author and kind of geek out the, at them. And and I wanted to kind of yell at this author and be like, "Yo, you are doing a huge disservice to survivors, even as you try to educate the public." And um, and that impetus is still there, but I, I'm holding back. Yeah, I hear you. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and my response to that is I'm just going to, I, my plan is to just outpublish these people in terms of, you know, either, either uh, popular literature and or academic literature, you know, both ways. I want to just, uh, I, I want to finish this. It, it's time that this gets, that this, that this get done and that, that we get listened to. And so, and only so a fully objective and balanced approach can be brought to this field. It's not about my side winning. 
you know, and they're all cults and they're all horrible and we should drive them all into the dirt. You know, that's, that's not really my attitude. <laughs> I think reform is possible. I think public education is possible. I think there's a lot of things possible in the future with this. Yeah. Um, but not if we can't even agree that there is a problem here. And that's, yeah. that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that for survivors, the fact that there are people that say there is no problem is sort of, again, you said re-traumatization, and I'm thinking it's like a gaslighting. Of, yeah. It's, yeah. It, we're going through the same thing where we're like, wait a minute, I grew up thinking there was a problem. You told me that there isn't. I get out, and I'm like, hey, guys, this is a problem. And you're like, no, no, it's fine. It's like... Exactly, exactly. And I find it sadly funny that they lament constantly, these, these NRM academics uh, lament constantly about how the media misportrays these cults because they rely on our stories. And it's like, I, I just wish you wouldn't display your bias so openly. Mm. <laughs> you know? This is a hard one for me because... Yeah. Uh, I will share more in depth off the record with you about this, but there are certain survivor stories that I have heard that are um, very prominent. And I'm like, that doesn't jive with my understanding of the group. And, and I really struggle with this because yep. on one hand, I totally recognize that the experience within a single group is non-homogenous, right? Mm -hmm. But when somebody talks about, how they felt as though they were like trained to kill by mm -hmm. Reverend Moon. I'm like, really? <laughs> and then and then at the same time, I'm like, but actually, I grew up reciting a pledge. I I seem to remember my family being super fundamentalist, and we did this every day for morning service, but it was supposed to be on Sundays and holy days. And this pledge was like. I will charge into the enemy camps and um, and judge them with the weapons that God has been judging Satan for the last 6,000 years. I will fight with my life. This I pledge and swear. I was fucking four years old saying this in English and Korean, at least weekly, probably daily, because again, my parents were a little off the deep end there. So then I think about that and I'm like, would I have been indoctrinated enough to kill somebody. And certainly if I was in, let's say again, that like mobile fundraising um, unit kind of milieu where I wasn't sleeping more than four hours a day mm -hmm. and I was on the road every day mm -hmm. and chanting to myself to try to kind of keep evil spirit rolled out and stuff like all of these things that, you know, create dissociation and whatnot, maybe, maybe. Exactly. So it's like, exactly. I, I have to fight that bias in myself. And I think that that's really important for a lot of us because we do a disservice to our community when we doubt each other's stories. And I find myself doing that sometimes when I hear even second generation stories where they're like, I was sent to Chungpyeong, which is this resort town in Korea where they do like super intense indoctrinations in the unification church and the horror stories that I have heard are so extreme that I'll be like wait really mm -hmm. are, you, are you sure and and I think that this is the same thing that we do to like rape survivors for example right where we are so trained to doubt them and be like they're lying they're just trying to get attention I have found that tendency in my own brain and so it is so important to educate ourselves and each other to understand the depth to which these abuses are allowed within these groups 
because otherwise we can become uh, a detriment to each other. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's a great point you just made. It's very important to um, to acknowledge that th this is an area of nuance. Mm -hmm. it, the area of memory, of experience, of abuse, atrocities, trauma, these are very subjective experiences. Um, you know, what is one person's uh, fantasy is another person's abuse when you get into, you know, certain realms, certain areas, certain ways of expression. Yes, but consent. <laughs> well, that's the point. Exactly. Yes. And, 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 and informed consent. Yes. What, what is the fully given, knowledgeable, informed acquiescence or something like that? FK, FGKIA is like the hashtag. Now, ah, okay. You know? Well, there you go. Yes. It, it, that, that's what we want. And, yes. and you don't get that. As you mentioned earlier, you know, if they gave you a piece of paper that described exactly what your life would be like, you'd be like, there's no mm -hmm. way I'm going to do this. Right. But that's that's called informed consent. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, these these uh, ridiculous legalese terms of service nonsense that you have to apply through. I mean, that's not informed consent either. It's it's right. a wall of text that that fails to inform you. And and you're yeah. consenting to things you don't even understand because who's going to do that? Right. And nobody does. And they know. Right. That. Right. Well, I think, too. We so one of the things that we're kind of deep in right now in um, my first trimester in in this school program is looking at some of the laws in the UK mm -hmm. um, in terms of the Modern Slavery Act, which goes into like human trafficking, and then um, the there's one about coercive control, and then there's another one about trafficking. But the one that well, the one about coercive control, and then the one uh, under the Modern Slavery Act. Mm -hmm. They struck me as important and also maybe not going far enough to protect people like us, but at least in the Modern Slavery Act, when they talk about human trafficking, there's an understanding of what coercion is. Whereas in the United States, there is the phrase legal coercion. You know, so if somebody is afraid of being deported, you know, and you're using that fear to keep them in an enslavement position, that is illegal. But the coercion to get consent in a cultic environment, that doesn't look like it's strictly illegal. Right. And that's a huge problem to me. And I've, I've just been sort of grinding my teeth about that because, um, again, my parents were trafficked and, and we haven't gotten into my story much because, again, I don't think it's that interesting, but I was trafficked, you know, and, and the first time that I was trafficked, I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, brought around the city of Arizona to basically do campaigning for a member who is uh, an assembly member in Arizona. He's now a judge, but he had 12 and 10 year olds like going around doing the canvassing that fucking adults were doing recently. You know, he would drop us off for hours at a time. Right. Yeah, this is and not this is not just, you know, some light volunteer work. <laughs> No, <laughs> done no. by some kids passing out flyers. This is this is no. not that. No, because I want to be clear. When you use the word trafficking, you're talking about specific things. Just mm -hmm. for the audience, you want to clarify what what that is. 
what what trafficking is specifically AI, how you're referring to it here yeah and talking about this and so i'm specifically talking about labor trafficking and mm -hmm. so you know when my time and my efforts and my energies are being exploited for no pay little pay and there's no choice about it um and there's certainly no freely given informed consent or anything like that because as a minor you can't give that um and, you know, when I was 17, I lived in a van and fundraised for the church. So I was literally being moved across borders. I had no way of contacting anybody, no way of getting home. And I was in the streets all day selling trinkets, basically like cheap jewelry. A friend of mine was raped and murdered doing this. So that gives you an idea of how safe this was. I was alone, no cell phone, no mace, no personal alarm hundreds of dollars on my person and a minor. So the, I mean, the funny recipe for disaster, anyone? Yeah. And this, the really sad thing. Um, and Elgin Strait, who runs the falling out podcast, when we were having a conversation about this, he pointed out that the, the most atrocious thing beyond the fact that this program existed in the first place was that it was allowed to continue after this girl was killed. Yep. You know, and and the parents were pressured not to take their children off of this program mm -hmm. because a it was a huge cash cow, untraceable cash, millions of dollars for the Unification Church. But the I think even more important than that, it was an indoctrination activity for second generation who had had no conversion experience. So it was a perfect way to force indoctrination and break us so that we would have that conversion experience. So when I talk about labor trafficking, that's specifically what I'm honing in on. It sort of checks all the boxes. Exactly. And and yeah. I and I think that that is a complete more complete description than what most people were thinking when you first said that. That's why I wanted you to sure, elaborate sure. on that because yeah, it's and, Yeah, I mean because volunteering for somebody's dad to go canvas the neighborhood for politics. It's, it still sounds sort of like, well, that's a little cutesy, right? But then another time I was brought to this guy's house to take holy wine, dip a needle into it, and then pierce Tootsie Rolls. So, you know, basically contaminating candy and then taken to another city to hand out to unsuspecting tourists so that they would be blessed, you know? And so you look at that and you're like, well, that's kind of creepy too. I don't know if that's trafficking necessarily when you do it to a 14 year old, but those are the sorts of things that lay the foundation to then when you say, come on this sort of, sort of like a Mormon mission for two years, and you're going to have this great experience with God. When you've indoctrinated a young person with those kinds of activities, their whole life, they're not going to look at this mobile fundraising team thing as like, that's creepy and fucked up. Although some of us did, um, but they're going to look at that as sort of like more in the line of, of what was expected of them and what was normal. It, it completely normalized that activity for us. Exactly. That is your normal. And that's yeah. the thing that I think so many people don't get about what second gen, what the second gen experience is versus the first gen experience. It is so mm -hmm. wildly different. It's almost two different paradigms. It's so different. It is. Because yeah. because you have a person who willingly, knowingly, responsibly joins the group. In other words, responsibly meaning they are responsible to themselves. They did it. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, they did it. You know, yeah. nobody necessarily kidnapped them into it or something. I wasn't kidding. You know, my 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 parents were not kidnapped into Scientology. They 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 made their own decisions. 
-hmm. I never was asked. (laughs) You were never asked. We were never consulted. When you're born into it, this is your normal. This is your life. And if it is Xenu and volcanoes and space aliens, or if it is flowers and, 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 you know, lighted candles or whatever at roadsides to sell, this is the normal experience of kids growing up in this stuff. This is how they think the world actually works. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was totally normal for kids to do like flower stands and stuff to raise money for activities, even for like church youth group stuff. And, you know, somebody could say like, well, how is that different than doing a bake sale or Girl Scouts doing, you know, cookie sales and stuff? But it's it's when you put that piece of the puzzle into the larger picture that it's hugely destructive. Exactly. Exactly. Because I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just. (laughs) going to say like, and when you layer in too, and I don't know if this was your experience in Scientology, but um, a lot of first gen's money went into the group, right? We weren't paying for classes. It was just like, here, take our money. Um, Because there was always a new Providence or something that we had to donate to. Um, So there wasn't a lot of money to actually care for the family, right? So if the kids needed anything it was a huge problem financially and so a lot of times these kids did take on that responsibility of like well i need to go fundraise to like buy clothes for school kind of stuff you know or if like you wanted to go to a water park with your church youth group it wasn't that the parents were like yeah let's do that it's like okay we'll go raise the money to do it so exactly years old go get money exactly and and let's keep in mind that these are these are kids who are generally not being raised on the same value sets or even going to public schools you were you moved 13 times in 12 years i mean this is this is a this is a mobile existence for a lot of these kids so mm-hmm. so the stability the you know what i guess psychologically what we're talking about is you know major attachment issues <laughs> <laughs> Right. No. I mean, just a couple. Uh, you know, because you're because you got weird attachments with your family, with your school, with friends, if you have them and can keep them. Uh, it, you yeah. know, you are leading a cloistered life. So the friends you can have are not just anybody you want to have friends with. Your parents mm-hmm. have to filter your entire life experience through their belief set. Yeah. And so, you know, one of your questions earlier, I don't know if we hit it while we were recording, but certainly pre chat um, was about like what I'm learning in this program. Yes. And so one of the things, I mean, I've read Alexandra Stein's Terror, Love and Brainwashing. So I've, you know, very familiar with the various attachment styles that groups like this create. Um, But what I didn't really realize until kind of reviewing Lifton again was that the, so in the Unification Church, um, the parents were supposed to leave their children in these nurseries called Jacob's House, but they were really kind of like orphanages as soon as the child was 100 days old. And what that does is that disrupts the attachment of the infant majorly, right? And I know in the, in the United States, we have a horrible lack of paid leave and horrible support for families. So, you know, a lot of us have to have two income households. And so three months, it's very normal for children to go into daycare. What's not normal is for them to never see their parents or to see their parents maybe on weekends. So I just, I want to kind of clarify that. So as I'm reviewing Lifton, where they talk about, where he talks about in the thought reform programs, you have to like 
basically call out your family as evil, what that does is that breaks down the familial ties so that your loyalty is to Mao, it's to the party, right? Well, the same thing happens in Unification Church when you leave an infant for a year up to seven years in some cases. What that does is that means that the children don't have attachment to their parents, the parents don't have attachment to their children, and everything goes up the hierarchy to moon. So that's epically fucked. Epically. That is a a great description of that because that's exactly what it is. And it also reinforces what you said earlier about how moon seems to have just taken Lifton, taken all the Chinese thought reform practices Because that's what Lifton studied. Lifton didn't invent this stuff. The Chinese did and the Koreans did and, the, and, and lots of other cultures through history have done this to people. This is not like it's impossible to figure out. People mm-hmm. have done it for centuries. It's just Lifton right. kind of classified and clarified and, you know, how does this work? And, right. and Moon, I think, took this methodology, let's say, wholesale and then and then converted it into a religion so he was in north korean prison camps mm-hmm. so this happened to him and so i think what he did is whether it was consciously or subconsciously he was like this is a really good idea you know and he took it and that became the model uh, but at the same time I've said this to other people, SGAs who've grown up in different groups. It feels like all of these cult leaders have the same playbook, whether they're learning from each other or not. Like they've all figured out this sort of secret recipe. Yes. Yes. I just laugh because you're saying the exact same things I've been saying for years. So it's just hilarious to me to run into somebody else who so gets this, you know, because that's exactly right. I've called it the exact same thing, cult leader playbook. You know, I, I started saying that years ago because that's exact because you realize it was actually a, a an epiphany day for me. I, like a, it was a real moment that is to this day I remember of of reading something. I was reading something about um, Jim Jones or Moon or some some other cult leader, and it was almost word for word. I was reading what L. Ron Hubbard had been up to, or had how he had described what he was doing, and I just and it hit me. It just oh oh, there's nothing. Spe- the, the the reason it was cathartic was not oh they're all the same. It was there's nothing special. Yeah. About yes. L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, um, I remember when I first got out listening to um, what is it? First day of my life by Bright Eyes. The phrase um, "I'm happy just because I found out I'm really nobody." <laughs> I know that that's dark, but at the same time, we were brought up to believe that we were so special, yes. and this identity was so fraught because you know everything that we did that wasn't on the straight and narrow broke God's already suffering heart and stuff like that. And when I digested the fact that, like, a I'm just a normal person. I can lead a normal life. That was so freeing. But then on top of that, um, as I've gone to some of the second gen recovery workshops done by ICSA, talked to other SGAs, read um, Going Clear and other books like that, it is so helpful. Watching Seduced, which is one of the the Nexium documentaries, mm-hmm. where like they they break it down. It's like, yeah, nope, same thing happened to me. You know 
different words for the same thing. And you just, I, I've actually used the, the phrase that I feel like we all speak dialects of the same language. There you go. And it, and the language is coercive control. Yeah. Yeah, it That's, is. You know, which is why this program is so awesome for us because, um, mm -hmm. cause it really helps break down. And I hate this word, but I, but it, it fits, you know, as deconstruct. You know, the I've co-opted that word from yeah. the ex-evangelical movement, so I don't hate it yet. <laughs> yeah, I uh, it's it's got other connotations I hate, but I oh but yeah I, no no the, like the whole it's not it's not Derrida or anything like that if that's what you're referring to. Oh no, I don't know. I, no, oh. I don't know what that is, but I okay. I uh, it's certain progressive circles. I just I. I Oh, kind of, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I could see how it could be applied to like uh, more communist socialist thought in that regard. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it gets a little weird sometimes, but but yeah. it's a great word just as a word because that's what you're doing. You're taking apart right. a construction right. and that's what, and, and cult belief sets, you know, these value sets are completely artificial constructions. Mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. they, they are the brainchild of one person, usually heavily modified as time goes on by contributions from others, usually unacknowledged, right? So that the leader can make, can stay the leader, even though half the ideas really aren't even his uh, or hers, as the case may be. And, you know, and there are just about eight or nine things they do. And it's really just a matter mm -hmm. of the wording of how they convince you to do them, you know, is kind of what it works out to. So this is going to be um, kind of my grumpy aside here. Yeah. I, I had to refrain from writing a nasty email and, and getting into a Twitter war with somebody uh, because a journalist recently wrote an article about the Unification Church and called it boring, like as far as cults go. And my reaction was originally like, fuck you, my trauma is not boring. Like it's this collective <laughs> trauma. But on the other side of it, all cults are just really kind of boring when you get yes. down to it. Yes. You know, it's like we all we all rubberneck at the cult experience because it seems so different, right? And again, there's that whole trauma porn aspect to it, which is what I was reacting to from this journalist's writing. But at the end of the day, again, it it is all just uh, the same playbook with, with different variations, variations on a theme, you know? And I, I guess at some point, I wish that we'd all get to that point of like, this is fucking boring. You know, let's stop feeding the frenzy of, well, on one hand, I appreciate all the documentaries and the podcasts and everything that are educating people. But what I don't love is the trauma is entertainment part of it, exactly. you know? And, and if we could get to a point where we're like, it's boring. Now let's study it from an academic perspective. I know that not everybody is going to nerd out like you and me about it, but um, I think that it would become less exploitative because I've had producers call me wanting to hear my story, which we still are sort of circumventing here, talking about other stuff. <laughs> um, but it is a very kind of exploitative experience. Mm. You know, I'm happy to tell my story because I think that it helps other people like me. But it doesn't really help the person that's never experienced trafficking, domestic violence, coercive control. Right. And I tell my story a lot on social media or, or pieces of it because those are the people that I've connected to. People who maybe have not had a cult experience but came out of um, an incredibly abusive relationship, which you know some of us will call a one-on-one -on -one cult, they find catharsis 
in like, oh man, I resonate with these things. Or I have a friend who's the child of alcoholics. And she's like, I resonate so much with what you're saying about these things. That's why I tell my story, not to entertain people who are like, oh, look at what the weird cult does. Look at these sex rituals. Fuck that. No. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, and I think in a way, um, that's one reason why I have been hesitant to continue doing a lot of interviews with former cult mm-hmm. members is because I started feeling like I was massaging misery and, uh, and I don't want to do that. And as you said, uh, you know, really encapsulating it with exploitative, you know, it's, it's, right. it's like, there's just, it, what are we doing this for? And I work very hard to try to draw out and point out to people, you know, the lessons to be learned, the, the takeaways yes. that, you know, please learn this so that it's not just something that happened to them one, you know, a, a very unfortunately, but so it doesn't happen to you or anybody right. you love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the two podcasts where I really told my story in full, one was the shunned podcast, which is um, really JW's telling their stories. But what I did with Michael Shemwell, who's the host, is I tried to use my experience as a lens into that that again, we're speaking dialects of the same language. We are more alike than we are different. And then the other time was on the Falling Out podcast, which I mentioned before, which is really, there There might be people listening to it for the, the trauma porn aspect, but I think it's really directed towards um, other ex-Mooney SGAs who are in the healing process. And for many of us SGAs, hearing each other's stories does have catharsis. There is a healing aspect to it because we carry so much shame and stigma but outside of those contexts, I'm very careful with my story. I talk to survivor advocates and healthcare professionals, um, usually mental health professionals, to use my story as an educational tool. Because, um, yeah, I, I, I've had plenty of experience of being the freak. I really don't want that for myself, and I don't want to perpetuate that for other people. Exactly. I've gotten to the point now socially where I don't bring it up anymore. Um, Mm. I used to because it was an interesting thing to talk about and because people were fascinated by it. And it was a way to connect, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, that's how I sort of used it. Mm-hmm. Um, only because at first I was, um, I wasn't sure what to say, you know, and then, and then, you know, you start talking to people and, and I, I specifically connected with skeptic groups and, you know, kind right. of the atheist crowd and they were fascinated by it. I mean, endlessly fascinated by it. So I, so I found a, a willing audience and I was, and it was cathartic at first to, mm-hmm. to do that. But then after, but now I'm wary of it because I know how it can dominate conversation, how it can take over the room, how everybody mm-hmm. gets all interested. And I, I don't like being the focus of attention anymore in social <laughs> settings like that. It's just, it beca- I, I feel like I'm depriving other people of oxygen and stuff. It's weird. I just, yeah. I, I don't like talking about it anymore. I think I've reached that, that, that tipping point. So, and I mean, socially, not, not professionally here. But, right. Yeah. Also, what's a social yeah. setting? I don't know anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> there is that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, yeah. so, so yeah. So I think what we're really saying is we're just trying to, you know, how do we take these experiences and do something constructive with them so that we yeah. can, you know, really benefit other people and not, n- not just be entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have an accurate answer to that question yet. I'm still in it. 
Um, and I, I spoke with Phil Drysdale on his podcast, which is all about deconstruction of Christianity, about ethical consumption of these stories. Mm. And that's a, that's a hard one too. Right. And I used the example of like, well, there's this idea of ethical porn and ethical fashion, right? And so how do we apply that to whatever we're consuming? And it is hard, right? Um, Because it's certainly easier to just digest what we're given or search out whatever titillates us. And so I think that we're all guilty in that regard. And it, it takes a lot of effort and sometimes uncomfortable effort to figure out both sides of the equation, how to contribute in a way that doesn't harm yourself or others, and also how to ethically consume. And I don't have a good answer for either of those things. I'm just hoping to sort of learn as I go, you know? Yeah, exactly. I've been, um, I've globbed on to critical thinking as the, as the, 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 the theme, uh, you know, the, 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 the path now, if, if, if there, if a path is necessary, if, if guideposts are necessary in my life, and I believe they are, then, you know, here are, you know, here's the most objective, the most rational, you know, mm-hmm. guidelines I can think of that that are not the brainchild of some weirdo or, you know, egotist or narcissist, right? Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, uh, SGAs, specifically multi-generational adults too, because I do want to acknowledge that there are some groups that have been around longer and so you've, you've got a, a, a lineage in them. Um, yeah, critical thinking is sort of the antithesis of how our brains were wired. You know, some of us don't, it's like, we don't have the muscles for it, right? right. Because <laughs> like, we were literally taught not to critically think. Um, you know, it was in, in the, the parlance of the Unification Church, it was creating a common base for Satan to invade and things like that. There you Any, go there's a lot of circular arguments and circular logic within the cultic framework. And so when you try to step outside of it um, and have some sort of like Socratic method, or just even ask why you get shamed and shunned. And so it does shut down again, a lot of those pathways in you. And so for many of us, it's, it's hard to do, you know, and, and I find myself sometimes spinning my wheels with that. And it's very easy to revert to, to old thinking because that is the soup that you were in for so long. My friend, Lisa Kona, another SGA from the Unification Church says that our brains were pickled and carved in this. And it's like such a perfect way of describing it. It's creepy, but it's true, yeah. you know? And so it, it is not for, for your listeners, um, and I'm sure that you've talked about this before, but it's not a simple thing for us to do this critical thinking. It's, it's very uncomfortable. It's like, um, these are atrophied muscles that we have to build up and it's painful to do sometimes. That's right. That's exactly right. And I have found for myself, um, that everything you just said and, um, I have extended it further because in looking at and educating about critical thinking as a topic and going into logical fallacies and rhetoric and arguments and claims and what is truth and what is what is science and what is the scientific method and what is this all about? I mean, I've gone deep on this stuff just to try to get my own head straight about how should I think? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and you and I I have my what my claim my my what I feel is true about this is that I don't think anybody is set up to organically naturally be a good critical thinker. It's it's kind of like trying to think imagine yourself being born as a black belt. There there is nobody who's born a black belt. It takes. It's a discipline, and I, I, I put it that way. As I say, it's not just a skill set. It's not mm-hmm. just some ideas. It's a discipline. You have to practice it. Um, and it's only through repetition and practice that you get good because it's not yeah. something our brains are tuned to do. No, no, and I think that the more you study about like neurobiology, the more that you recognize that there is um, varying levels of activity in our brain, in various parts of our brains, depending on what we are engaging with and what we're not engaging with. And so therefore, you know, critical thinking is going to be an area of our brain that's not lighting up much during the cult, and it is going to take time to, <laughs> to get us there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because what you're, yeah, because you got, you know, if if a normal person, if a, a, a normal person, I love this, the quote the unquote, normies. the normal person, the normies, right? Yeah. If a, if your average Joe, whoever that is, um, can't organically, naturally, critically think, you know, we've got, you know, a whole other barrier as second right. gen members to deal with, which right. is this sort of mattress of nonsense that gets shoved, you know, over us. And it <laughs> sounds so suffocating. <laughs> I, right, that, nonsense. Exactly the point, right? It's just, it just, you know, it, you can't see anything. You're just buried under this stuff, you know? Uh, okay. Let me, let me, let me, <laughs> we're not going to redirect totally here, but this is just, I'm having so much fun in this conversation. Um, what do you think has been, um, you know, having been through everything you've been through, and we've covered, I think we've given enough little tidbits that people get the idea you've had a pretty abused life. Mm. Um, and if there I didn't are, think so. I didn't think so. Isn't that funny? Well, neither did I, right, ah. until after the fact, right? I mean, I was yeah. in prison for three years. Not prison, but the RPF. Yes. I mean, right. you know, this kind of nonsense. And this is just our, this was our normal And it's so weird because like when I read Going Clear, for example, and I read about that, I'm like, well, my experience obviously wasn't that abusive because I didn't go through that. Right. Right. And, and, and I also, I'm always like caveat, don't compare pain, right? Don't compare trauma. That's, that's super unhelpful for us. But yeah, it, it is so interesting that we all normalize our experiences. And so going back to a prior question of yours, like, even as I, I was reading Evan Stark's book, um, Coercive Control, mm-hmm. How Men Trap Women in Personal Life, which is such a dense read. It's like, it's such important information and it's so hard to get through because his sentences are like entire paragraphs. But reading that and then, you know, going through some of the section on domestic violence, I'm like, oh, I grew up in a really violent home, you know, because I did. There was a lot of violence in my home. Um, and then, I didn't know what labor trafficking was until my friend Teddy Hose, who's uh, an activist in the the ex-Mooney SGA world, described it to me and like with examples. And I was like, oh, holy shit. And then again, like going through this master's program and reading about these laws and reading about these case studies, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that checks out. And so I think that again, as we educate ourselves, like it really puts our stories into um, better context. But if you had asked me two years ago, if I'd grown up in an abusive home, I would have been like, 
Yeah, my dad like yelled sometimes and hit us with a belt, but like actually, no, there was really, really intense violence. Um, to the point where I remember my mom telling me at eight years old not to tell my teachers what was going on because she thought uh, Child Protective Services was going to come in. And that was a threat throughout my entire life yeah. to the point where I didn't even go to therapy until my youngest brother was 18 because I was so afraid of my my four younger siblings getting taken away and put into foster care wow. because that had been ingrained. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um and, you know, to sort of like tie the story in a bow, I left the Unification Church at 21 and leaving is more of like a, a, I distanced myself over time, but there was a specific break where I ended a forced arranged marriage in the Unification Church to a stranger. And I couldn't even use the term forced for the longest time because I didn't have the education to understand that I had grown up in that coercive control milieu that there was, it was in, in uh, Dr. Yanyalalich's parlance, bounded choice, right? You either marry this person or you jump off a fucking cliff because you're basically dead to us, right? You'll lose your family. You'll lose your, your financial. I was working for the church at the time. Um, you'll lose all of your friends. Even as I struggled, I got fired from my church job. I lost all my friends because I wasn't like putting on a happy face all the time. Yeah. Um, but it took me a long time to use the word cult. I, I wasn't comfortable with that word because I'd been indoctrinated into, we're not a cult. Cult is a bad word. And, you know, Scientology is our friend. <laughs> In fact, I told you on Twitter, the Unification Church, when I worked for it, um, for $100 a month, sleeping on a floor full of other women. I, I don't know why I did women. I was going to say volunteers. Um, if that's not, you know, modern I, slavery. Yes, I <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. but Scientology rented the second floor of this building, right? So there was like a lot of, of palling around with Scientology. But at the same time, I told you this one girl that I knew who was in the building with me was like, don't go to the second floor. They'll try to brainwash you there. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought brainwashing meant you got tied to a chair and had somebody like play videos for you all day until you were just like this mind melted zombie, which is probably what, you know, the massive public thinks brainwashing is too, and you turn into the Manchurian candidate. Right. Stuff. But I think that overall, the, the point that I'm trying to make to really thread the needle here is that education has helped me understand my story better and to put it into context more. And that has been so healing for me. Um, so talking to cult aware professionals, um, this educational program, et cetera, even though I've been out 15 years, I'm finding like, it's, it's so healing to, to realize that there's a new depth to my own experience and story that I'm understanding and I'm contextualizing and finding forgiveness for myself too, because I think a lot of SGAs and MGAs, we will judge ourselves. We'll take the stigma that society projects onto us and just like amplify it. Yep. because we don't understand that we grew up in an environment with such intense coercion that I believed for the longest time that because I broke down after days of begging to leave a locked building, a, a moon mansion on an 18 acre compound, 
I had no cell phone, no money, et cetera. Right. And I was two hours away from home, um, begged for days to leave and then finally broke down and was married to a stranger. I believed that I'd chosen it because my family, the church told me you chose this, but that's not really the definition of choice. So again, um, all of this coming back into the the neat little package of I think education is super healing. It's helpful for those outside to understand, but I think it's really helpful for us to kind of own our stories in a way that um, is a lot more truthful and doesn't carry the propaganda and the shame of the cultic experience with us. I could not agree more. I think that, um, well, for the longest time, I mean, only until... I guess this year, I mean, there were a couple of stabs I took at getting some therapy up until this year. And I've been out Mm -hmm. since 2012. Uh, So 2013, I guess you could say officially, but um, uh, education was my therapy. (laughs) was was really important. I mean, psychoeducation is a component of cult recovery, but I, 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 I think you can overplay it, but I don't think, I don't think you can overstress it. And I, and that's why I talk about it all the time. Yeah, I uh, I first went to therapy in 2012, partially because I didn't realize that I needed therapy. So I'd been out six years at that point. Moon died in 2012, and my youngest brother turned 18. And so it was sort of this like conflagration of things. And I was like, I need help. And um, most therapists don't really understand the cultic experience. And I didn't have an education to educate my therapist at the time. So we didn't really get very far and it compounded some issues for me. But when, so my journey into education was after my mother passed, I, I had no real connection to who my parents were prior to the church. And I had very little connection to my ancestry, if you will. You know, we weren't really allowed to be close to our uh, extended family. So I became fascinated with this idea of like, what was that conversion experience? Because I couldn't figure out who my parents were. There was no way to access that information because too many people had died to be able to tell me, this is who your mother was, this is Mm -hmm. who your father was. So Mm -hmm. I started reading all these first gen memoirs. And that led me slowly but surely into the more academic world. And Josh Freed's book, Moonwebs, um, part one is him trying to rescue his friend Benj from the Unification Church. And part two is all psychoeducation. So he interviewed Margaret Singer. He is referring to Lifton. And so all of those footnotes became like my library, Mm. you know, and it was so important to me. And then I actually ended up meeting my therapist through a recovery group that ICSA put on. And, um, and I just, I do a lot of my own reading because the ICSA has such a a library of studies that I feel like those two things in tandem are really helpful for me personally. I know that that doesn't work for everybody and not everybody is a research nerd, but um, I eat that up, you know, it, it's so helpful to me to realize people are interested, people are studying this and, and there are things that help me understand myself a little bit better in black and white. Exactly. Exactly. I have found it to be immensely clarifying. 
um, across a number of uh, of spheres or areas of my life. Yeah. Uh, from my thinking to how I interrelate with other people to, you know, um, taking apart or or sort of shedding a lot of the false information and propaganda and nonsense from the cult or, you know, from mm-hmm. Hubbard. Um, just so much to do. So many, so many filters to take apart. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, 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 I the, the analogy, the onion layers, surely you've heard that, you know, yeah, comes absolutely. off like onion layers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wonder. Every layer you take off, you cry. Yeah. I'd never heard that one. No, no, that's funny. <laughs> I like that. I like it when I hear something new like that. Yes, that's why I say that's 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 actually exactly how it works. So that's funny. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, do you have any standout? I mean, has there been anything? And it's okay if not. I'm just kind of wondering. Has there been anything that stood out for you in your education that was particularly a milestone, or mm-hmm. you know, even to this day, you're like that was so important for me to understand for clarifying my experience. Um. Well, again, you know. Josh Freed's book, it it wasn't Mm. my experience, but it was a big light bulb moment for me when he starts talking about the indoctrination process that is so um, basically, you know, lifted right out of the Chinese and North Korean thought reform programs. Um, Being able to sort of trace the genesis of that made me understand my history a little bit better. And and this is such a touchy topic for a lot of SGAs, um, balancing the compassion for the parent who is tricked and um, manipulated, and then also trying to hold them accountable for the abuse that they perpetuated. I, It's a very uncomfortable place to be because there's a lot of us go back and forth between it. And there's, there's, I don't know if there's a comfortable middle ground because both of these things are true. You know, my parents inflicted horrible abuse as did many other first generation. And they are many times, even after they leave unable to acknowledge it because that means that there's, there's so much work that they have to do. Um, many people who leave there, there's like two different kinds of first gen. There's the one, at least from my experience, there are the ones that are totally bitter. And then there are the ones that are like, they still believe in moon or they still believe in the church, but they believe that the the church has become corrupt. Um, and I, I, I don't like either of them. I really struggle <laughs> with first generation, which is hard because like, there are so many amazing academics in ICSA who are first generation in different groups. I just don't want to deal with the, the Mooney ones. Um, and, and at the same time, like I totally respect the work that Steve Hassan does too. So sure. um, I'm dealing with my own shit with that. But um, yeah, I think that, that that understanding from Josh Free's work led me to some other really important books like uh, Escaping Utopia, which you and I talked about pre-interview by Dr. Yanya Lalich and Kara McLaren. Um, one of the problems that I faced reading that book is uh, remnant black and white thinking on my part, because there are no Unification Church second gen that are interviewed. So I didn't see my exact experience in it. And it was easy for me to be like, oh, well, but really like digesting it post reading it, 
it it came back to that like oh variations on a theme we are all very similar so that's a really important milestone book for me and it's one that i recommend to everybody excellent excellent i want to highlight for second gen members listening for people out there listening wondering about this hearing us talk about this because you've been out for years i've been out for years we have done a lot of work uh, it, we've, you and I have invested a lot of time, clearly. And money, clearly. The, and, yeah, and money, that's right. And, you know, and trying to figure this out. I mean, you really have this question of what the hell happened to me? And, mm-hmm. and this, and, and varying, you know, and people are going to have, are going to accept varying levels of answer to that question, I think. But I don't know anybody coming out of these situations who isn't asking that question. Like, what the hell happened to me? And how do I prevent that maybe from happening again? <laughs> You know, again, it took me a really long time, probably six years and moon dying before I was ready to ask that question. Mm -hmm. And I want to share this to acknowledge other people who've been through this. Mm -hmm. I was in survival mode, like I need to keep a roof over my head and feed myself for a long time. um, Because it was fraught. And, and again, not to compare pain, I know people who went through worse, who were living in their cars and dumpster diving and, you know, living in shelters and kinds of things. Uh, and I was a, a hair's breadth away from that as well. And so because there are no services designed for SGAs who are leaving these high control groups, um, it's okay if you don't if you're not on that part of like Maslow's pyramid to be asking those questions, it's okay. If you are still in the like food shelter kind of part of the yep. bottom of the period, like that pyramid, that's legit. And that is, uh, I, I, I just want to draw attention to that. Something that, that so many of us go through. So if, if you're like, what's wrong with me, because I'm not asking the question of what happened to me, there's nothing wrong with you. Oh God, no. Oh God, yeah. no, no. And, and I, I wasn't I, trying to imply that you were saying that. I just, I know how I processed that at that time. Yeah. So I uh, know. I thank you. Thank you for clarifying that because, um, you know, because I speak from my own experience, of course, and I don't want to project me onto everybody else. And what I was where I was trying to go there was to say, you know, for you, it was it was Moonwebs. For me, it was Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. For mm-hmm. others, it'll mm-hmm. be another thing. It doesn't have to be a single thing that's going to be yeah. your epiphany moment or are going to cause you to have, you know, that are going to that's going to be your milestones. I recommend Demon Haunted World because it was such a big deal for me. Maybe it'll be a big deal for other people. Maybe it won't. I've found varying, you know, your experience may vary. But <laughs> Mileage I, may vary. Yeah, exactly. But I believe that there is something for all of us. I think that all of us can find the book, the 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 knowledge, the information, the video, the whatever. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be one thing. For some of mm-hmm. us, it's a number of things. We have lots of questions or lots of layers to the questions or mm-hmm. whatever it is that's gonna hit us. But I but what I wanted to what I wanted to stress is don't you know look go you know take go, go on the quest you know go go look see what's out there for you see what resources are out there for you you've mentioned the icsa uh, website has a wealth of resources there's books there's google there's this there's that there's podcasts there's there's a million things out there and anybody who's listening to this has already found this much but um 
I just wanted to stress that everybody's experience is very context specific. It's not a matter of what. Here's the thing. When you're yeah. in a cult, yeah. you're on a production line. You're on an assembly line. Everybody's treated the same. And when you come out, you get to be you. You get to be different. Yeah. And what's going to fit what's going to fit you might not necessarily what's going to fit me, but something will. And I guess I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Yeah, it's um I mean, I do say there's there's no like homogenous experience. Um so when you talk about the assembly line, yeah we were all trying to fit into that. But even our cult experiences were so different because we were all such different people and we were coming from various walks of life. And so um, even, even to your point, there may not be an epiphany moment. You may not have this aha. It may be more of a long slog and you'll look back and be like, oh, damn, look at how far I've come (laughs) without the light bulb going off necessarily. And I think that that's valid, too. Fair enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, well, I could say your experiences may vary. (laughs) (laughs) But I think doing the work is fun. And I think it's, um, I think it's important. I think it's valuable to do. Um, And it, and it seems again for, for second gen, it might be, you know, I, I always feel, I always feel a little cautious about this. You know what I mean? I, I, it's, it, it falls under the umbrella of comparing trauma or something. Maybe, I don't know, but I just, I really want to stress that for second gens, you know, who never had any other idea than the cult world that was presented to them. I, I, I really think that there's that added layer of work that needs to be done there um, that the first gens don't necessarily have to experience, you know? Well, there's so much in that phrase, right? One of the things that, so I've, I blog and I've taken some time off since the summer, um, but one of the things that I really stress when I cite research is that there's a dearth of research about the second gen multi-gen experience. So a lot of the research that is there is talking about the pre-cult identity and yeah. then the recovery, right? And people who've grown up in these groups don't have the pre-cult identity to return to. And so it's it's going to be long and complicated, um, the work. And when you say the work to a, to a cult kid, they're like, I got to work. And so one one of the things that my, my therapist stresses to me is like, you should play, you know, you didn't learn to play. That was something that was not allowed in your childhood. And so I sometimes approach the work like a good little cult kid, you know, and that's something that I have to be careful of. It's part of why I've taken a break from my blog. I mean, now I'm in a master's program where it's like probably more intense. So I acknowledge that, but, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I want to stress balance too, that if the work is fun for you, if it feels, um, cathartic, if it feels uplifting, if it's helpful, go for it. And if all you need to do is like parkour for a little while, like do it, you know, do whatever lights you up, explore, um, because that's valuable too. Exactly. Exactly. What do you think should be done about the cult problem? (laughs) How do we solve world peace? Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) Um, It's, it's such a complicated question, right? Because um, I know that not all cults are religious, right? There's, Mm -hmm. 
there's business cults and there's personal familial cults and there are political yours and my experience is the religious one and so that's kind of what I can glom onto a little more readily is I think that we really have to look at from a legal perspective what is personal liberty right because in the United States religion is so protected and even a question that um, our program facilitators brought up in a lecture on Wednesday was in terms of the laws around um, gangs, the the language of the law is, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, is around like if something doesn't align with British values of like democracy, et cetera, but what are British values? Like how do you define them? And who gets to define them? And so in the United States, you know, defining the breadth of, of religious liberty um, to the point that it it infringes on personal liberty and it is allowed to coerce people into situations that they wouldn't otherwise get into, like that's problematic. And I think that there are some, to steal a phrase that might be totally inappropriate, some sacred cows in the United States that, that we do have to look at, um, that we have been unwilling to look at for a long time. And, um, and, you know, the Unification Church, this is part of why they have cozied up to a lot of these right-wing religious movements, because they are so protected from any kind of, of litigation, because they are hiding behind the facade of religion. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think we have to deconstruct this idea of like, what is, is this like a legitimate religion? And then of course, you know, we're going to get back into the cult wars with the new religious movements being like, this is a baby religion. We have to protect it. Yep. But is the unification church really, really a religion? Because we need to look at it from a financial perspective, right? The, the New York times recently did an expose on the sushi industry, the Unification Church controls the majority of the sushi industry in the United States. And there were two lines in there, the subtext of which, and this was a super long article, but the two lines were about how the uh, international marriages within the Unification Church allowed for Moon to import Japanese members into the United States and have them stay with legitimate visas or green cards eventually, and that many of these members worked for little to no pay living in communal environments. Okay, so we're talking about human trafficking, yes, modern slavery right there. And the, the New York Times didn't call that out, right? And Steve Hassan made a really brilliant uh, tweet about the fact that like, Okay, this is a great article, but you didn't cover the fact that this is an empire built on the backs of human trafficking, among other things. And I was really grateful for that because he is such a strong voice in this realm. Um, but I think that we have to be willing to have these conversations. Steve Hassan also on the Freedom of Mind website has a 71-page document of all of the business entities and front groups of the Unification Church. What religion needs 71 different business associations, you know, and um, in her book, In the Shadow of the Moon, um, Nansa Kong, who is the former daughter-in-law of River Moon, talks about how people brought money into, like, into the United States from Japan, cash, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, 
in their purses or people would like line their, their pants underneath their pants with this money. The government knew people have known that money has been laundered by the Unification Church for a long time. But in John Gorenfeld's brilliant book, uh, Bad Moon Rising, he tracks how the Unification Church has been cozying up with right-wing groups and started the Washington Times, which was also funded by human trafficking. So we have this really complex web that there's been this unwillingness to begin to untie. And again, I'm using the Unification Church as an example because that's the entity that I know the best. Um, They've been hiding behind the fact that they're a religion for so many decades. But we have to start asking these questions, like should they be protected like this? Because there is human liberty at stake, plus a lot of laws that are being broken. Um, And I'm not necessarily saying that it's going to be easy because again, there, we go back to that question of like conservatorships and personal liberty and what is choice. But if we start thinking about um, consent laws and course of control laws, and what are those going to look like, then maybe we'll have a foundation to start litigating against these entities that are so exploitative. So I don't know if that's a solution, but that's just what I sort of chew on when I get angry. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. And in fact, that's what's led me to trying to figure out, okay, I can't save the world anymore. That's not my, that's not my task, right? It's not my, wasn't that a carryover from the cult brain anyway? We were all supposed to save the world. Well, that's the point, right? Is exactly that. And I, and for, and for a long time, that was a struggle Uh, embarrassingly. So, um, because it is such a silly notion. And yet when it drives your thinking for decades, it's not something you just turn off like a light switch. And it took me a number of years to get past that. So exactly. now, now it's a joke and it's cool. And it's like, okay, good. Well, I'm not saving the world, but I would like to do something useful. I'd like to, I'd like to leave some sort of mark that matters. And I think that, that everything you just said is is a hundred percent true, and I could I could easily line up Scientology on that exact same description, right? Same model, um, importing people, pages. If I showed you the list of all the front groups of Scientology, it goes on for pages. You know the 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 the, the billions of dollars, the the money laundering, the fact that it's really just you know using religious cloaking to hide a business model. It's not a religion at all. You know, this kind of stuff. And what I realized is that, you know, these these folks in academia have been uh, buttressing the cult's arguments for so long now that they're institutionalized and that this is this is why I'm targeting academia as 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 something that I think I can do something about. And that and that it needs to be done because it's not just the hallowed halls of academia or, you know, you go to college and you're going to get a, you know, some some wrong data. That's not that's not the point about academia. The point is that they are the expert witnesses in the courtrooms. Yeah. So when you try to take the Unification Church or Scientology to court. There they are. Telling mm-hmm. the judge how they're a legitimate, credible religious organization, and these apostates are just telling horror stories, and it's all just nonsense. Yeah, there's a a book that um, it's it's brainwashed by uh, brainwashed the history of mind control by Dominic Streetfield, and I might be butchering his name, but I'm mad at him anyway, so that doesn't matter. Um, there's a whole section on 
brainwashing in the unification church. And I, I read it on Instagram, um, IGTV, which is no longer a thing, but if you go to my IG profile, you can find the videos. And as I'm reading, I'm sort of like talking about the points that he made. And like in the beginning, he's talking about how horrible the indoctrination is, but then also how toxic deprogramming is. Um, but then he very much goes into like the new religious movement line of thinking. And he talks about how like, well, Dr. Margaret Singer can't be trusted because this one thing, which sounded kind of like cult propaganda. And yep. I was like, what? And I, now I want to like grab the book and find it to be like, this doesn't make any sense. But the the point is, is that he's a journalist, right? So he's not an academic, academic, um, but his, his, he was editorializing based on data that he got from new religious movement scholars and was discrediting one of the foremost minds in cult research who spent 50 years studying cults and interviewing people who has a doctorate in like psychology or psychiatry. Like she knows her shit. She's dead now, unfortunately. She knew her shit. Um, and so, so just to write her off in this footnote like that, I was like, wow, like these people have done quite a number on the thinking and the writing that is coming out about these groups to the point where in the beginning of this chapter, it sounded like he was criticizing the Unification Church. And by the end, he's like, I don't know, this person seems totally normal. And it sounds like, you know, just a, a lot of scare tactics by the psychologists and the anti-cultists. And it was so weird because that bait and switch happens without you even realizing it. You know, but if that's where you're getting your information from, um, it's still propaganda. Exactly. That is still propagandized, you know? Exactly. Um, so, yeah. It, it reaches into lots of different strange nooks and crannies that you just wouldn't imagine uh, mm -hmm. it would reach. And yes, popular media, um, you know, journalists who take themselves seriously and go look and read and listen to you know, people who they believe because these people have letters after their name and have spent a number of years in the hallowed halls of academia, these people are the authorities. They're the ones I should listen to. And unfortunately, you know, what they might as well just go to the Unification Church or the Church of Scientology and say, give me your propaganda and I'll go regurgitate it for you. And that's... I mean, that's basically what the book Making a Mooney felt like to me. Yes. I know, I know that a lot of inroads have been made in terms of trying to have dialogue between these two sides, but that book is like a big wound for me, right? Because the thesis of the book is that they do nothing wrong and there's no abuses and there's no thought reform. And I'm like, did you just like make my entire story and all of my trauma illegitimate? Exactly. <laughs> and Unification Church paid for this research to happen. You know, so yeah, I completely agree. And that book's on my shelf. And every time I look at it, I'm like, yep. Okay. Yep. Well, there's a book by Donald Westbrook called Among the Scientologists. Yeah. Just published within yeah. the last 10 years, which is the latest and greatest monograph and shows that the research on Scientology is moving forward at great speed. And isn't this wonderful? And it's nothing but a con job by Scientology, you know, who, who feeds this guy you know, pre-drilled, pre-coached 
scripted Scientologists going and sitting in front of him, you know, and yeah. anyway, we know how nonsensical this is. It's yeah. it's the, the, the struggle is the fact that these guys have millions of dollars behind them, billions. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and us poor schleps got nothing. Nobody's backing us. Nobody's doing, the, you know, the work on the other side because there's no there's no money in this. You know? Right. Right. So. I mean, um, two points to beat a dead horse to continue. Um, <laughs> Cult Awareness Network, which is the, the uh, primogenitor of ICSA, is now run by the Scientologists because they sued. And I think that Cult Awareness Network basically became break- bankrupt to the point where Scientologists were able to get the name and the domain. Yep. So if you go to the Cult Awareness Network looking for help, looking to get somebody out, you are in direct contact with Scientology. Exactly. Um, so there's that. And then I, I don't know if Scientology has a similar model, but the Unification Church in the past and still today, and this has been a sort of evolving thing, they would put on these conferences um, all over the world and they would pay for people to come to these conferences and they would sound really legit, like the International Interreligious Federation for this, that, and the other thing, right? And they would have, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. I have in front of me right now, the Journal for the Critical Study of Religion, uh-huh. published in collaboration with the Religious Studies Project. This is 2020. And uh, this journal is nothing but cult apologia, bought and paid for by the cults. Yeah, um, and, and the way that that happens is these conferences where like these academics are on the cult's dime being indoctrinated and groomed same way that guys if you didn't know this reverend moon got crowned in 2004 in a building in congress by congress members why because money this is this is the open i think the opening scene in john gorenfeld's book bad moon rising if you look it up there's an old salon article uh if you look up reverend moon crowned congress like it happened i was i was on the cusp of being out like this was right around the time that i was forced into the arranged marriage i was already having issues and that's why they forced me into the marriage but even i couldn't believe it i was like what's going on? This is weird. Um, you know, and at the time moon was proclaiming that like even Hitler had been redeemed through his, his ideology, you know, and Stalin and they'd all been blessed and blah, blah, blah. And so our elected leaders crowned Reverend moon. And then of course, afterwards they were like, Oh, we had no idea this was happening. But the point is, is that through money and through connections developed over time via money, these groups are able to uh, work their way into academia, to politics, et cetera. And it's a huge problem. And it goes back to my point before of like, where are we letting these groups get off where they shouldn't be allowed to, right. you know? And, and also like, are you doing your due diligence? If someone's paying for you to go to a conference in Hawaii, are you really like, are you Googling who's putting this on? Because like, I'm pretty sure that Steve Hassan has this organization in one of his lists that you should be aware of, you know? So just like one Google search could tell you. Granted, some of this happened in the 70s and 80s pre-Google, but the point is, is that this is still happening today. So the Unification Church had Trump 
speak at one of their events. They had Pence speak at one of their events. These guys know who the Moonies are, but because of money, they're getting seemingly legit. I don't even want to say legit because like I can't stand those guys, but for a subsection of the American population, this is a legitimizer. And so there are people in positions of power who are being seduced and are lending legitimacy to these groups. And it's a huge problem. And I could just bitch about that all day, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's something that we all need to be aware of. Well, for sure. And if you, and I, I, I'm on the, I, again, totally on the same boat here. Um, if you watch documentaries on Netflix, like the family, uh, Jeff Charlotte's book turned into documentary by, um, Alex Gibney or going clear or, you know, any countless number of, of these things you will find in these documentaries specifically, uh, the government tie-in, mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. national prayer breakfast is, is nothing but a Christian cultic activity gone crazy. Uh, the entire Day government is... signed on with that. Yeah, Parents' Day is a is I don't know if it's like necessarily a national holiday, but it's something we recognize in the United States. That's a holy day in the Unification Church. There You're you welcome. Go. You right, know? exactly. Next, we're going to have L. Ron Hubbard's birthday being nationally recognized. <laughs> I mean, this kind of thing, right? And so the the point being that it's it, we have a cult problem here, and and the mm -hmm. cult problem is not one cult; it's a number of cults that ha all have this. Uh, problem, and that problem is they ex they exert an undue influence yeah. on politicians. And Dr. Steve Hassan has also pointed out too that these groups they team up with each other. You know, yeah. they support each other because what's good for one group is good for another. So if you know one group is suing another group. You know, people like us, <laughs> if Scientology is suing you, the Unification Church is going to support that, that's you right. know? Um, and so that's something that, you know, we're all working against is these like multi-billion dollar organizations that um, are protected and have a lot of good connections. And then there's people like you and me on the other side of this. Um, but I was going to say something else and now it's completely gone. Oh, they'll come so. back. It'll come back. I, I, know, I know we're ranting a little bit here, but it's, it's, I actually wanted to ask you, well, I did ask you before, and I think this entire conversation in a way has been the answer, which is, you know, how has your education <laughs> influenced your post-cult experience? And it's, and, it, and it, you know, you and I are on exactly the same page on so many things, I think exactly because you have gone so far in in reading and looking and listening and finding out what this is all about as you know as i have and we are both trying to you know engage in some kind of public education campaign you know yeah i i think for me that is one of the most important things is like i look back on my old self and if somebody asked a question that was projecting shame or stigma onto me i would shut down and i'm at a point now where i I don't necessarily want to like go against the group, you know, and, and fight the Goliath. Right. But if somebody says something that I, I see that shame and stigma in, I want to step in to shield people who are not at a point yet where they're ready to have those conversations. And I want to give those people those tools because they were so lacking for me. Um, and I remembered the point I was going to make before one of the educational pieces that I kind of bang on about 
is that people who remember the Moonies either now think of them as sort of like this like friendly group, or they think that they just disappeared when in fact many of these groups go underground or they reinvent themselves. So they're not called the Unification Church anymore. They're called the Family Federation for World Peace or something else, you know? Um, and so it, it is really important to educate people about the extent of cultic manipulation and the fact that they are still here. They haven't gone anywhere. They've just evolved. And that is one of the things that's so hard about these groups. When you're on the inside, it's the new providence or it's the new directive or whatever. Um, but that's part of the cult evolution to escape the, the stigma that the public have finally recognized needs to be put on the group. Um, so that they can continue their activities just under a different name or a different umbrella or to protect themselves with various shell organizations. So my mission is kind of twofold. It's like, I want to protect the kids like me who are still trying to figure their shit out, who are not ready to have those conversations because it's still so raw for them, or they haven't had the opportunity to do the reading or develop those critical thinking skills. I'll be like, well, actually, Dr. Margaret Singer says X, Y, Z, because I have the ability to pull that out now. And it comes to me more readily, whereas a few years it didn't. A few years ago, it didn't. Um, and also just kind of banging on about the fact that like these groups are still present. Every time you eat sushi, you're supporting the Unification Church kind of thing. Um, and that they're, they're influencing your politics. You know, the, the Washington Times is a precursor to uh, OAN, I think, and some of these other... Newsmax, um, Breitbart, Daily Stormer, Need We Go quote, On. They quote the Washington Times. Yes. Reagan lent legitimacy to the Washington Times, which was a propaganda machine for the Unification Church and for the right and now the alt-right. And so it's so important to realize that part of why we're here is because these groups have infiltrated so many aspects of American life. So you could say that, you know, the Unification Church might be partially responsible for the fact that Trump got elected or for the riots of January 6th. That might seem like hyperbole, but again, you know, to, to uh, promote John Gordfeld's book, if you read Bad Moon Rising, he talks about the influence campaigns that went on since the 1970s until he published the book in 2004 which culminates in moon being crowned by our, our senators. And so I think that it is really important for us to realize that um, to, to use Dr. Margaret Singer's, you know, book title, there are cults in our midst and they, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. And so we have to sort of strip back that curtain to be able to see the machinations. Big time, big time. Well, I think that was brilliantly stated actually. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, anytime you can get the word machinations out loud into a sentence, you're doing good. Right. Without like mushing it in your mouth. That's right. Exactly. Well, this has been fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to move toward wrapping this up only because we've been at it for two hours and it is, and we've had a very wide ranging conversation far more than I imagined that we would. And I figured this was going to be pretty good. So 
And um, neither of us are drinking either, but we're still <laughs> having a great time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wait till we do that show. So um, I actually am leaving this open. If uh, in the future we want to do this again, I think that that would be, uh, I think there's a wealth of things that we can discuss here. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Cause this is a, this is a real super important topic and, and, and I don't think there is such a thing as talking about this too much, given the fact that of, of what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It doesn't go away. It hasn't gone away. No. And, it, and we can bury heads in the sands and we can deny and deny and deny. And people do that because they, that's what they tend to do. But we just, why we got to keep putting it there. Yeah. You know, yeah. cause this isn't a fad. This is a thing. Yeah. This is, this is real. Yeah. And I, I think that it's important to recognize too, that in times of social unrest, cults are uh, at their most appealing to yes. people, you know? And so that's why there was this huge um, surge of them in the 1970s. And that's why we have things like QAnon now, you know, and you can debate whether or not you want to call it a cult. But I think that the point is, is that conspiracy thinking and, and all of the things that sort of are under that larger cultic umbrella, they develop in the environment that we're in now. And so it's that much more important to be aware of what's happening, to be aware of the playbook, to have those critical thinking skills in place. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I couldn't have put it better myself, so I won't even try. Thank you very much for uh, being part of my show this week. I, Thank you I, so much for having me. Yeah, really, really enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. I love to nerd out with people about this kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. All right, folks. Well, I hope you all nerded out with us. And I yeah. hope that uh, I hope this was, uh, as I like to say, entertaining, informative and educational. Those are the three things I'm trying to do with my channel here. And um, and I hope I'm succeeding. And if I am, uh, consider throwing some support my way. I would really appreciate it. And that all being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye bye.